I will always be grateful for the work of the Jacob Eddy Veterans Center in caring for my father the last seven months of his life. When I hear how our veterans are treated around the country, I just wish that things could be like they were for my dad at the Jacob Betty Veterans Home. One of the things that they did for my dad was the social worker just spent time talking to dad and listening to him and sharing his life. As he got closer and closer to the time in which he would pass away, she said to him, uh, Bob, are there any final words that you would like to pass on to your family? And of course, he did. So Sally, the social worker, took a paper and a pen. And while Dad shared with us his final words, she wrote them down put them in a letter, and then after he passed away, sent the letter to us. I have her cover letter in my hands today. Listen to what she said. Dear Brian and family, this is dated November 12, 2010. I hope everything is well with you and your family. I hope you will find comfort in the many wonderful memories of your father. Bob will be a gentleman that I will never forget. We had much discussion and his strong faith has strengthened my faith. Enclosed, you will find a letter that I had dictated from your father to be given to all his family. Please ensure that this letter will be passed on. Thank you. Sincerely, Sally Ellsworth. Here's the letter from my dad. What a treasure. It's like a love letter from the grave. What a treasure. If you knew that you were going to die... What last words would you want to leave to your loved ones? Now, we knew my father was going to die, and so we were prepared for it. But what if your loved ones didn't know? What if they were in denial and they thought that everything was going to be fine? That you were going to continue to live on and care for them and support them and guide them. Would not your final words to those loved ones be very, very critical? Would you not want to prepare them for what lay ahead after you were gone? Now that is exactly the setting that we are stepping into today in God's Word. We are beginning a new series on the Last Supper of the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples. This supper began about 24 hours before his death, and his his disciples were in denial. They could not possibly process that Jesus was going to be arrested, tried, tortured, and cruelly crucified. 
Jesus said to them, I am going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and they were totally, totally befuddled. And so Jesus wanted to prepare them for the rocky road ahead, for the life and ministry that they would have after he was gone. Do you know, in the upper room discourse, which is what this section is called in Scripture, it's his final teaching before the cross. Some have called these chapters in John's Gospel, Jesus' farewell discourse. I like better what one pastor said, they are love letters from the Lord. And because Jesus is still absent, they are his final instructions for us while he he is away. They are love letters, as it were, from beyond the grave to help prepare you and I for the life and ministry he wants before he comes again. Let me notice with you this morning what Jesus is going to teach us. In John 13 to 17, he's going to give us a lesson on discipleship from the towel and the basin. He's then going to talk about love and betrayal. He will teach us about Peter's fall and his rise, and and then he will talk to us about the blessed hope that will sustain us in difficult days. He will speak about doing greater works today than even Jesus did in his ministry, and of course he will talk about our helper the wonderful Holy Spirit. He will ask us, are we barren? Or are we bearing fruit? He will talk about the new commandment that is critical for us if we are to be the community that he wants us to be while he is away. He will prepare us for persecution. How relevant is that? He will come back to talk about the Holy Spirit, part two. He will let us know how sorrow can be turned into joy, how we can have peace in tribulation, and then finally we will get to John 17, and it will be, listen, shh, Jesus is praying. How thrilling all of this is, and it is all for you and me. Now this morning, we begin with the foot washing of the disciples. And what we're going to discover today is this is an enacted model of discipleship. And I want to bring a message this morning that I am entitling, True Discipleship, the Towel and the Basin. And what our Lord is going to teach us is how He wants us to relate to one another as His disciples so that we can have the community He wants us to have while He is away. He will do two things. He will apply the foot washing to himself, and then he will apply it to us as his followers. Would you bow with me for a moment in prayer? And let's ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, our mission statement says that we are all about becoming Christ followers. And sometimes we think we know what that's all about. But Lord, our actions and our behavior often towards one another reveals that we don't understand following Christ sometimes in the way we thought we did. And I pray today as Jesus begins this 
farewell discourse, these love letters from beyond the grave, I pray that we will learn well what it really means to be a disciple. Bless now, Lord, through your word. Open our hearts and our minds to you. May we grasp the things you have for us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's open our Bibles to John 13 this morning. And in this foot washing, Jesus begins by applying the foot washing to his life and ministry. And I want you to listen as I read verses 1 and 2 of John 13. Listen to how this familiar section opens up in the words of the Apostle John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. First application of the foot washing to our Savior is that Jesus' life was about servant love. It is so very critical that we understand this. There are two phrases at the end of verse 1, and the tenses of those phrases tell us that Jesus constantly loved his disciples. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so throughout his entire relationship with them, at every point of contact, it was inspired by love. Now here he is, 24 hours from the cross, He will die on that cross 24 hours from this very time. And the Bible tells us that he loved them to the end. Now, there are two ways we could take that. We could take that chronologically. He loved them all the way to the end of his life. But probably, more importantly, what this means is he loved them completely. He loved them to the fullest extent by giving his life for them as the ultimate expression of his love. Um, Can I ask you just to stop for a moment? Jesus is 24 hours from the most gruesome death you can imagine. Isn't it about time that he focused on himself? And yet his total focus is the disciples. Let me ask you this morning, how difficult was this? Judas was in the group. Verse 2 says that Judas had already conspired with Satan, willing what Satan willed to betray Jesus. Now I want you to think about this. In less than 24 hours, Judas is going to betray his master for 30 pieces of silver, and Jesus washed his feet. Do you have anybody today that you are struggling to forgive? I do. 
Ask me to wash their feet? I think that'd be very hard. Do you know who else is in the group? Peter the denier. Bragging about how far he would go in his love for Jesus. And yet he denied him three times with cursing and swearing. And Jesus washed his feet. How great is the servant love of Jesus? If he was here today, and he knew that you hated him, and you hated the very mention of his name, he would wash your feet. If you are here today, and you're a believer, and you're a follower of the Lord, and you have denied him through some sin you have committed, he would wash your I learned from this Jesus' love is unconditional. Jesus could not love us any more than he already has. In fact, Jesus loves you so much that if you will let him, he will serve you. One day, Jesus gave his ministry, what he was all about, to his disciples. In Matthew 20, verse 28, he put it down for all time. Would you read with me what he said he was all about? Would you read it with me? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of God talks that way? What kind of God says, it's not about you serving me, I came so I could serve you. Just a few weeks ago, a pastor friend of mine I hadn't seen in a decade came up to visit. He's had for 30 years a ministry to internationals down in Lansing at Michigan State University. One Muslim that he witnessed to quite a bit one day said to him, I am never going back to the mosque. I am tired of all the hate the imams preach in the name of Allah. And then you come to this God and he talks like this. How great is the servant love of Jesus. If you let him, he will serve you. As we move on in this foot washing, second application we see. Jesus' love came from self-humbling. His love came from self-humbling. Notice in verse 3 we are told, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus waited for the very last minute to see if these proud, ambitious, status-seeking disciples would do this task. Uh, Because it was a rented room, there was no servant present who would do this. By the way, do you know what they had been doing before this occasion? Luke 22 tells us they'd been arguing about who was going to be the greatest. That's what they were talking about. In fact, not far before this, James and John had said to Jesus, Can we have the highest seats of honor in your kingdom? We want to be in charge. At the door of that room that evening, there was a jar of water, a basin, and a towel to wash dirty feet. And since there was no servant, one of the twelve had to volunteer. You ever tried to get people to volunteer in church? (laughs) This is the beginning of the church. Now all of us know Jesus could have commanded one of them to do it. He could have said, Bartholomew, would you do this? Would you wash the feet? And if Jesus had done that 24 hours before his death, not a single one of us would give it a second thought. We would have said to ourselves, of course, of course, of course, Jesus is going to the cross. Of course it's appropriate to ask Bartholomew or one of the others to wash the feet. Instead he got up. He did one of the most demeaning and despised actions possible. You know, for Jews, touching feet was an act of shame, not an act of status. Some said Jewish servants should never have to do this. It should only be Gentile slaves who would do this. And get this, in all of recorded history, there is not one instance in ancient literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. So that when we come to this story, this is the first time in all of ancient literature we read of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It is totally unique. We have to ask why. Why? Well, it was his whole life. Jesus' whole life was a life of self-humbling. In fact, when the Apostle Paul gets around to describing the incarnation from a theological point, his central focus of Jesus coming to this earth and becoming man is how Jesus humbled himself. Now what is fascinating is the actions of Jesus in the foot washing perfectly parallel what Jesus did in the incarnation so that this foot washing is an acted out parable of the self-humbling of Jesus. Keep your finger here in John 13 and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment 
And let me show you this parallel. If you have never seen it before, it blows your mind because it is Jesus' whole life was a life of self-humbling. Now follow along in Philippians 2 with verse 6. In the foot washing, Jesus laid aside his outer garments. By the way, that indicates he took off his robe, his inner tunic, and he stripped to a loincloth. Brothers and sisters, he washed the disciples' feet in his underwear, essentially, which is typical of the way a slave would do it. So the first thing he did was he laid aside his outer garments. Now notice what verse 6 says in Philippians 2. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He laid aside the glory he had with the Father in heaven. Second thing he did in the foot washing was he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And here in verse 7 we read, he took the form of a servant. Third thing he did in verse 5 of the foot washing was poured water into a basin. And now we read in verse 8 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He poured water into a basin and he poured out his life into death. And then the final thing he did was he washed the disciples' feet in the foot washing. And here we read he died even on a cross, death even on a cross, which washed away our sins. So look at this. The whole career of Jesus was self-humbling. Now, please do not miss here the connection between humility and love. Don't miss that. Only those who have humbled themselves can love like a servant. James and John... They were driven by selfish ambition. Remember one time a town in Samaria rejected Jesus and James and John said, Master, should we call down fire on this town? They wanted to nuke them. So selfish was their ambition. James and John could not love. Peter, he was possessed of self-confidence and braggadocio. And he could not love. And Judas, possessed of hate and bitterness, he could not love. The only one in that room who could love in this way was Jesus who humbled himself. And we ask the question, why did Jesus do this? Another question that I think is important is how? Did you notice three critical details in verse 3? You can't miss this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Notice what Jesus knew. He had all authority. God had placed everything in his hands He had a divine origin. He had come from God. He also knew he had a divine destiny. He was going back to God. 
Now, please follow me here. Jesus now is being told that we're being told that he was completely secure in his relationship with the Father. Therefore, he had nothing to prove. And having had nothing to prove, there could be no honor, status, or position that could give to, be given to him to enhance him any way, in any way. Therefore, having all, he was free to love and to serve. Now that leads me to say something very critical this morning that I don't want us to miss. Please listen. Only those who know who they are, where they are going, and who they belong to have nothing to prove. Please, brothers and sisters, this morning, hear me. Only those who know who they are, where they are going, and who they belong to have nothing to prove. And when you have nothing to prove, you are free from pride, selfish ambition, and status-seeking, and therefore you can love. Jesus lived in a society that was very conscious. You never do anything that makes you look small or ashamed. You seek things that make you look big and have position and status. And now he says to the disciples, I want you to see me dishonored and ashamed. Because in 24 hours, I'm going to be out on a cross with the same loincloth around me, and you are going to see me in the deepest humiliation imaginable. And I have nothing to prove. Therefore, I can serve. Think about this. You're a Christian and you're not first. Your name is written down in heaven. That's a whole lot better than being first, isn't it? So second is okay. Your salary is not as big as someone else. Big deal. You have the riches of Christ in glory. Anybody's salary measure up to that? Greatest pay you can have. You're not elected chairman to the board and you think, I'm the one that really ought to be leading this board. It's okay I wasn't elected. I'm seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Any better seat in the house than that? Or my idea is rejected. That's okay. I can accept that. Jesus said, consider others better than yourself anyway. And if that's what pleases him and my idea is rejected, that's okay with me. May I ask you a question here this morning that I ask myself? Are you trying to prove something to others about who you are? Be honest. 
Are you trying to prove something to others about who you are? You will never humble yourself to serve and love. You see, it's only those who are secure in their relationship with God who can humble themselves. And then out of that self-humiliation say, I've got nothing to prove. No one can make me more important than I already am. Slights can come my way and, and I can absorb them and keep going because I know who I am, who I belong to, and where I'm going. And it's only when you know that about yourself that you will humble yourself enough to serve. Now notice the third application. Thirdly, Jesus' humbling accomplished our sin cleansing. Would you look at verse 6? He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you don't understand now. But afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head, my whole body. But Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. I think it's starting to become clear to all of us that this foot washing illustrates the cross. As Jesus poured out the water and washed feet, so he would soon pour out his blood to wash away our sins. And this was his ultimate goal. He would humble himself, which would lead to servant love. And out of that servant love, he would accomplish our sin cleansing. Now, let me just share with you two very wonderful things about this cleansing. This is so critical. Number one, it is a once-for-all cleansing in salvation that makes us completely clean. If you look at verse 10, Jesus said, the one who is bathed is completely clean. And the tense of the verb for bathe refers to a past action that has continuing results. So that we could read this statement by our Lord this way. You have bathed with the result that you are now clean. It is settled once for all. So that when you come to Jesus recognizing who he is and you repent and by faith receive his salvation, you are forgiven of your past sins, your present sins, and even your future sins you have not yet committed. You have a complete cleansing that is once for all. 
I have a book in my library written by a wonderful Bible teacher. The title of the book is Salvation is Forever. And that is exactly right. When you have truly been cleansed by Jesus, it is a permanent cleansing. By the way, let me drop this in. Some in our midst may believe you can lose your salvation. That tomorrow if I sin, I might be in jeopardy of losing my salvation. Did you notice that Jesus said you can't go back and be bathed all over again? The custom that he is talking about here is when somebody would invite somebody to come to their home for a meal in the first century, before they would arrive at that meal, they would bathe themselves. And as they would walk through the dusty streets in the dry season, they would accumulate soil on their feet. In the wet season, they would accumulate mud on their feet. And when they arrived, they did not need another bath. What they needed was the cleansing of their feet. Jesus is saying, a salvation that is forever. You can't go back and receive that once again. So I would say to you, brothers and sisters, who believe that it's possible for a true, genuine believer to lose their salvation, if you believe that, you can't go back and be saved all over again. I think Jesus is teaching salvation is forever. Second thing about this cleansing, it includes the daily cleansing that occurs when we sin as a Christian. What would happen is when you had bathed and then you went to the guest's home and they invited you in, there would usually be a child or a servant there and they would take this jar of water poured in a basin. They would generally be stripped down to their underwear and they would have a towel, a long towel, they'd wrap it around their waist and they would wash your feet. And what Jesus is teaching us is this. As we travel through this world as Christians, we get our feet dirty. We sin. And just as you don't want to be reclining at a table with somebody's smelly, dirty feet, that would be an offense. So our sin is offensive to God. So Jesus graciously cleanses as we confess our sins. What a wonderful image this is. Complete cleansing in salvation, never needed again. Cleansing every day in our daily walk. Our salvation is secure and cannot be lost, and daily sin is never permanent because Jesus cleanses it away. How incredible that is. Do you see this? Jesus self-humbling led him to servant love. And his goal in all of that was our sin cleansing. Now following the washing. The Bible says that Jesus took his place at the head of the table. 
And he applied to the disciples the lessons he wanted them to learn. He is a wonderful teacher. He doesn't leave us hanging without the truth we need. And so as I close this story out, we want to come to the application to our lives as disciples in the Christian community that Jesus is forming. And here are the takeaways. My brother John in the first service always says, Pastor, what are the takeaways? What are the takeaways? Let me give them to you this morning. Here's the first one. Our model for discipleship is servant love. Please get this down. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, and now notice how he reverses it, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Very critical word. The word example there means paradigm or pattern. What we are being told is this is Jesus' model of what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is about servant love. Let me be very plain with us today. It's not about being a big shot. It's not about having other people listen to us. It is not about being treated as important in the eyes of others. It is about servant love. Do you know my family could care less about the degrees that I've earned? I graduated from college five times. I have five diplomas. All that proves is I was a slow learner and had to keep going back. That's all that proves. (laughs) The other day, my wife pulled them out of the dust-covered shelf where they're at. My family never, ever asked to see them. They do notice my servant love. They do notice when I mess up that I apologize and make things right. They notice that. My son has never asked me, Dad, what are you preaching on this Sunday? Never. He has said many times, Dad, are you coming to my game? Many times he said, Dad, are you going to pray with me before I go to bed? Those are the things they notice. Secondly, Application to our lives as disciples. 
We are never more like Jesus than when we are humble servants. Verse 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, get this, this is very important, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We all know who the master is, we all know who the sender is, and we all know who the servants are, and who the sendees, the messengers are. So Jesus is making it very, very clear, we are never more like him than when we are humble servants. Two of my favorite Christian leaders are Donald Carson, professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Francis Schaeffer, who is in heaven with the Lord. Donald Carson said this, little becomes Jesus' followers more than humility. And Francis Schaeffer said, love is the ultimate mark of Christians. Third takeaway. Happiness is a byproduct of living the Jesus way. Jesus said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed means to have the favor of the Lord upon your life, and any disciple who knows God's favor is on your life has joy and inner satisfaction because that's the most wonderful thing, to know that God's favor is on you. And therefore, when you live this way that Jesus is describing, uh, it doesn't matter if you have to do menial things. It doesn't matter if you get the credit that you were hoping to get. When you're turned aside or, or wronged in some way, well, it doesn't affect your inner life because you've got nothing to prove. And having nothing to prove, you can have the true happiness that comes as a byproduct. May I ask you today a simple question? Are you happy in the Lord? Are you happy in His way? If you are here today and you are a claiming, professing Christian and you are miserable and unhappy, making all those around you the same way, let me suggest to you, you don't understand Jesus nor His way. Because when you do, you don't have to seek happiness. It comes as a byproduct. How wonderful all this is for us. This will transform your marriage, transform your family, transform our whole church. This morning, rather than singing a song, I'd like to conclude with a song being sung for us. Michael Card has written a wonderful song called The Basin and the Towel. It's been put together into a video and it drives home the lesson 
before us so much today. Let me play it for you. And then I'll lead us in a closing prayer. With a painful glance, he'll silently rise. Their Savior's servant must show them how, through the will of the water and the tenderness of the dove. And the call is to community, the impoverished power that sets the soul
Let's stand together, shall we? Please bow in prayer with me. Oh, Father, on the walls of this very sanctuary, we affirm that our goal is to be becoming Christ followers. But now we see what it's really all about. It's about growing in our knowledge of our Savior. It's about connecting in authentic community with His people. It is about serving those people with our gifts and talents and then telling a lost world what we have found in Jesus. Oh God, today, help us to learn this lesson about what it truly means to follow Christ. And I pray, oh how I pray, that you will start with me. For Jesus' great and wonderful sake, amen.